Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. Now, before I jump into this episode, I want to address an error I made multiple times in a recent episode, and it's a very Jonathan kind of mistake. So in the episode I did about smoke detectors, I talked about the radioactive element, americerium-241. Here's the problem. I inserted an extra syllable there, and even in my notes I had it spelled correctly. It's americium-241. So in other words, I, I kind of pulled a classic Homer Simpson goof, like a saxophone, uh, several times in one episode. So thanks to Twitter user Ken Waldrip for pointing it out. It is incredibly embarrassing. It is all my mistake. It's totally me. It's kind of an insight into how Jonathan's brain works, which is not all that great sometimes. I don't know why I inserted an extra syllable, multiple times throughout that episode. But thank you, Ken, for uh, letting me know so that I could correct that error in this episode. Let's move on to another episode where I'm sure I will mispronounce multiple things. Uh, But it's a fascinating topic, or at least I find it fascinating. So I was looking through tech news recently, and I saw a really interesting article. Uh, It was covered in a lot of places. The first place I saw it was in Gadget, but I read about it elsewhere as well. And on Engadget, it has the title, Researchers Find a Way to 3D Print Whole Objects in Seconds. Now, that immediately got my attention because typically 3D printing takes a while, sometimes a long while, to create an object because it typically does it layer by layer. The answer in this case lies in a technique called tomography. So this episode is going to cover a few different topics so that I can explain as best I can how this methodology works. So let's start talking first about just 3D printing in general. It's a type of additive manufacturing, which means you're making something by adding to it rather than taking unwanted stuff away. So with traditional sculpture, the sculptor might take a block of some material like marble and then carve it and cut away tons of it. There's an undoubtedly apocryphal quote attributed to Michelangelo, who allegedly described his process as, you just chip away the stone that doesn't look like David. Now, Mikey probably never said that, but you get the point of the quote. You're removing material, and whatever is left after you're done is the finished piece. Additive manufacturing goes the opposite way. You add material bit by bit until you have the thing you wanted to make. So it's kind of like how potters work, you know? You you add clay until you've got enough mass to shape it into whatever final form they have in mind. And 3D printers work in a similar way. They lay down thin layers of material, one after another, until layer by layer they have completed a print job. And typically, the bottom surface would be whichever one is the largest of the finished 3D object. So it might not necessarily be the bottom of the 3D object, but it's the bottom of the print job because a larger surface area means it's going to support the rest of that physical structure much more easily. 
There are 3D printers that can work with all sorts of materials. The kind the average person would have access to uses plastic, one of two types, and a typical 3D printer uses spools of plastic cable as printing material. So the cable gets pulled into a piece called the extruder, which heats the plastic to make it sort of a a semi-liquid before depositing layers of this plastic, usually mixed with some sort of binding agent, onto the printing surface or after the first layer onto the last layer that was laid down. This process tends to take a while and you have to get the temperature and speed just right or you get problems with layers not adhering to each other properly or peeling away or sticking to the extruder as it moves through its path. I say this from experience. We have a 3D printer in the office. We have successfully printed on it perhaps four times We have run it many more times than that. But however, it does mean you can actually make whatever the object is relatively quickly compared to more traditional forms of manufacturing. And there are lots of benefits with 3D printing. One is that it makes the prototyping process much faster. So let's say you got an idea for the body shape of a car. You could build a 3D model of the shape Then you could use a 3D printer to create a small physical model of what you had in mind, and then you could test that in, say, a wind tunnel to make sure it would work the way you planned before you moved further into the process. But maybe you discover that your design has some unexpected quality, like increased air resistance. So the extra drag would mean the car would not be as fuel efficient, so you need to go back to the drawing board. You could go make some quick adjustments to your model, and then send that to the printer again and print up a new prototype, and it would go pretty quickly. You don't have to carve away at stuff over and over. And another big benefit is that you have less waste overall. You're not taking material and then only using a small part of the overall mass and throwing the rest away. So lots of companies that manufacture physical goods use 3D printing for the prototyping phase, and several are using 3D printing in the actual manufacturing process for finished items, whether it's for a small component that goes into a bigger product or a complete product from top to bottom. And while we've heard predictions that 3D printing would bring about the end to mass manufacturing as we know it, a future in which everyone either has a 3D printer or has easy access to a business that owns a 3D printer. Thus far, that has not happened. We have not seen a world where we all just print whatever we need on demand, where I sit there and think, oh, I need a new chair, so I'm going to go down to the 3D printers down the block and get one printed out. That has not yet happened. Maybe one day that will change, but for now the process isn't quite as convenient or as reliable as more traditional manufacturing methods. But that's traditional 3D printers. And I've done episodes to go further into detail about their history and how they work. So you can go and listen to those classic episodes if you want to hear more about that. But that's not what we're going to focus on for the rest of this episode. Now it's time to switch over to tomography, which is not the science of how Tom works. It has nothing to do with Tom and MySpace. No, this relates to radiography and the use of stuff like x-rays, though as we'll learn, it's not exclusively limited to x-rays. And I know I've talked a lot about x-rays in recent episodes, but bear with me here. So early on, physicists learned about how x-rays could penetrate solid material much more effectively than visible light could, and that if these x-rays hit a sheet of photoreactive material, it would cause that material to react. So it reacted as if visible light had hit it. So if you put something like, I don't know, 
your wife's hand between an x-ray emitter and a sheet of photographic paper, you would end up with an image of your wife's skeletal hand on that paper. I say wife because Röntgen, Wilhelm Röntgen, who discovered x-rays, used his wife as a photographic subject for a lot of early x-ray photographs, exposing her to ridiculous amounts of radiation in the process. At the time, he didn't know any better. But that's why I use that specific example. Now, why do you get the skeleton hand in the finished image? Well, it's because x-rays can pass through different materials with different levels of ease. So they can pass through less dense material more easily than the denser stuff. And that follows common logic. That just makes sense, right? So x-rays can pass through muscle tissue far more readily than they can pass through bone. And bone is just much more dense. They can pass even less easily through something like metal. So if you were to take an x-ray photo of a typical person's hand, the bone would block more x-rays from hitting the paper than the soft tissues would. Uh, the soft tissues would allow more x-rays to come through. So the result is that the image on the photographic paper would be kind of like a negative. The skeletal hand would show the spots on the paper where x-rays were blocked from hitting it, and that meant that it would be relatively unexposed to light, and the softer tissues would allow it to go through, and thus you would have a greater exposure. So you can see that skeletal hand because of the contrast between these two sections where the rays were blocked versus where they passed through. Now, the discovery of x-rays came at the very end of the 19th century. The medical establishment quickly saw the potential for this technology. They saw that this could be really valuable. You can see stuff like broken bones very easily. They immediately recognized its usefulness. They also, over time recognized some of the dangers of x-rays, such as radiation exposure, which was really more of a problem for doctors than it was for patients. Patients would get small exposures whenever they would get an x-ray uh, done on them, but the doctors who were performing the x-rays were getting ex exposures time and time again, and they were the ones who were really starting to develop serious problems because x-rays are a form of ionizing radiation, which means they can do cellular damage, and that in turn can manifest in different ways from radiation poisoning to a uh, higher risk of contracting cancer. So uh, they also saw a limitation of this technology, namely that x-ray photos have the same problem as any traditional photo has. They produce two-dimensional images of three-dimensional objects. So in medical schools, it was pretty standard practice for students to work with or even produce cross-sections of organs. That essentially involves cutting organs into thin slices like a loaf of bread and then examining each of those slices carefully. And it's an effective way to teach medical students about anatomy and organ structures, as well as learning what is and isn't typical, so that if one were to encounter an atypical scenario, the doctor would be able to recognize that as such. Now, if you put all the slices together, it looks like the original organ. Of course, the big problem with this method is that it usually requires the original owner of that organ to be, you know, not alive anymore, making it a little difficult to apply medical knowledge to their case. So it's a useful educational tool, but not great for diagnosing a patient. 
uh, at least not in a timely manner. So doctors at the time were hopeful that there would be a new technology that would make it possible to create images of three-dimensional objects in an accurate way, specifically organs showing their volumetric properties so that you could do things like look at them in perspective as opposed to looking at what amounted to a series of silhouettes of organs and bones. If you took an x-ray of someone's torso, the rib cage would obscure a lot of your, your view, and then your lungs and your heart are located in an area where it's hard to see them individually because they're overlapping each other. So they wanted to find a way to create a three-dimensional representation of this. Doctors at the time were hopeful that they could come up with a a way of doing this in a practical manner, but they weren't really sure how that would happen. Now, one person whose work would contribute to achieving this goal, though that was not his particular aim at the time, was a mathematician in the early 20th century named Johann Radon. In 1917, Radon produced a mathematical transform, specifically an integral transform, which means you add up basic elements until you get the full uh, thing you're looking for. There are a lot of different versions of integral transforms. And he also discovered its inverse. So this transform described mathematically a process that could be realized in a practical setting, namely that one could take the result of projections of an object and reconstruct an image in real space based on those projections. It all has to do with geometry, and to get into further detail would require someone far more educated in mathematics than I am. But there are some great videos online about the radon transform that give a good explanation of it, including one from Rich Radke. It's titled DIP Lecture 18, Reconstruction from Parallel Projections and the Radon Transform. You can find that on YouTube if you want to see a really detailed mathematical explanation of this that is far beyond what I can give you. Radon's work was interesting, but at the time there wasn't really any practical way to put it into actual use. One early step in getting to the goal was the development of linear tomography, or the ability to take radiographic images of a specific plane or cross-section in a solid object, like a human being. So in other words, you could create a cross-section of a human being without having to cut the human being open. It was a miracle. So this relates to that mathematical transform I just mentioned. And interestingly, in the early days of tomography, That actually would predate Radon's transform as physicists were thinking about how to take X-ray images from multiple angles to get a more complete picture of a specific internal organ as early as 1914. For actual implementations, there was a period from around 1921 to 1934 in which multiple people, all working independently, all not knowing about each other, started to build systems capable of producing what would be called tomographic images. They didn't know about the other's work for a very long time. And when they found out, can you guess what happened? If your guess was, I bet they all rushed to be the one to claim credit for it, you'd be right. Because that was a very human reaction to say, I'm the reason why this works. But that was put on hold because a little thing called World War II happened. The basic idea was the same from one instance to another instance that all these people were coming up with, but the actual details were different, such as the angles of motion for the X-ray emitter and the detectors, which would be on the opposite side of the patient, or the speed at which 
these components should move with each other. Uh, also, the word tomography itself was coined around 1935 and comes from the Greek word tomos, meaning section, and the suffix graphi from the Latin word graphia, meaning study of. So it's the study of sections, and it combines Greek and Latin. So I have friends who hate this word. They would say, stick with one or the other. Um, one of them sitting right across from me, but never mind that. Anyway, so imagine you've got a person standing in front of you, and you are somehow able to produce an image of a slice of that person from head to toe, and their shoulders are facing you. So it's like it's like you just are able to look at a slice of them right from the middle of that person. But you're able to do it without, you know, actually physically slicing them. So how does it work? Well, I'm going to do my best to try and explain this process. So this is going to be an example. They don't all have to look this way, but this is a way for me to explain how this could happen. Imagine that we've got a patient laying down on an x-ray table. And above this patient, there is a track that's in an arc, kind of like a rainbow above the patient, starting from around the head and ending somewhere around, let's say, the knees. Uh, on this arc is mounted an x-ray emitter. So this is the, the tube that will shoot out x-rays at the patient. On the opposite side are x-ray detectors. This is underneath the table. And the two can move with each other. So you start uh, make, moving the, the emitter along this track. It moves, gets in motion. Once it starts, shortly after it's started to move, it begins to emit x-rays. And then it nears the end of its arc. It stops emitting x-rays. And then it comes to a physical stop. And you're aiming this at a specific point on the patient. Perhaps you want to image this patient's liver. So you've aimed the emitter at the patient's liver. And as it goes through this entire arc, it still stays focused on the liver. So that point of focus does not change as it goes through this arc. Uh, that liver will then become the pivot point for this particular scan. The uh, ends of the seesaw of this pivot point would be the x-ray tube on one side and the x-ray receptors on the other side. So if you think of a seesaw going up and down, in this case, it's not really going up and down. It's just going through an arc. Then one end of the seesaw is the emitter. The other end of the seesaw is the uh, receiver. And the middle is the liver, the pivot point. The, uh, the angle from the top of the arc to the bottom of the arc is called the tomographic angle. The angle at which the X-ray emitter starts to emit X-rays and the angle at which, or, and when it stops, is called the exposure angle. So there are two different angles in, in here. The exposure angle is always going to be smaller than the tomographic angle uh, because of that. So how... Why Why would you go through all this? What? What's the end result? I'll explain after we take a quick break. Okay, I just described this weird process of an x-ray emitter going across an arc aimed at a patient. Why would you do that? Well, it's because the image produced at the end of this process creates a very sharp picture of everything within the exposure angle along the focal plane of the pivot point. So 
let's say you're looking at this patient from the side. The patient's laying on a table. You're off to an observation area off to the side. The focal plane is the horizontal slice of that patient that runs through the pivot point. So let's say that you've determined that you wanted to aim at a point that's about eight centimeters up from the uh, surface of the table. That means that at that eight centimeters height, along that entire horizontal slice of the patient, you're going to get a very clear x-ray image. The further out you are from the focal plane, so the further toward the patient's front or anterior and back or posterior, then the fuzzier the image is going to be. Now, in this way, a radiologist could produce a sharp image of a specific slice inside a person. You would get that cross-section. But you still had to deal with other issues, such as the fact that bone is more effective in blocking x-rays than soft tissues or water. So if the area you wanted to look at was below bone, such as within the rib cage, the bones would still present something of a problem. But you would still get a better look within a specific depth of a person, if that makes sense. So it was definitely an evolution of the science of radiology. Now, you could repeat this process, and you could adjust the pivot location further up or further down to get sharp images along different depths. But that also means you're also exposing the patient to multiple, you know, exposures of, of X-ray radiation. A little exposure presents relatively low risk, but the more you're exposed to x-rays, the greater the risk of adverse effects like damage to your cells, right? So you want to be careful with this. Over time, advances in technology created the possibility of axial tomography, which was introduced in the 1970s. So in this version, instead of having an arc above the patient, the x-ray emitter and receivers are mounted on a ring that goes around a table. So think of a table that passes through a ring and the patient lays on the table. The emitter and the receivers are mounted on opposite sides of this ring and the patient and table are at the center of it. And with axial tomography, you take a series of images with the x-ray tube along different points of the ring, moving in a full circle around the patient on the table. So you get above, below, and on either side and every angle you can really imagine. And the machines typically take a ton of quick images as the machine rotates around the table very, very fast. Uh, you can actually find videos of a CAT scan, because this is what this is, a, a, a computer axial tomography scan. You can find videos of this equipment rotating where the cover is off, so you can see how the internal structure rotates within this, this uh, machine. It's amazing how fast it goes. Uh, I found it almost alarming how fast it goes because these machines also are very big. And to think that something is spinning that fast around you is a little unsettling. But the result of all this fuss is you get a cross-section image of the subject. And the table can be moved further in or out of the ring. And another series of images can be taken. And that gives you another cross-section. You could do it again and take another cross-section. You do this enough and you eventually end up with images, three-dimensional images, of the stuff you want to take pictures of. And you're able to put that together through the help of computers. Engineers would uh, call these CAT scans and later just CT scans. A bit later in the 1970s, you had Dr. Raymond Demadian, who created a device capable of imaging internal body scans using magnetic resonance rather than X-rays. The major benefit of this technology is that unlike X-rays, MRI machines do not emit ionizing radiation. 
So you don't get that radiation damage to your cells with an MRI machine. There are other damages if you, or other dangers, I should say. If you happen to have, you know, magnetic material on you, that's bad to be anywhere close to an MRI when it goes off because you could stand to injure yourself or somebody else seriously if uh, they are in between the MRI machine and whatever it is you have on your body that is magnetic or, you know, is ferromagnetic. Today, though, hospitals typically have both MRI machines and CT scanners because there are actually different reasons to use either one. Like, they're each good for different things. Uh, Over time, scientists and doctors have really refined the tech of CT scanners to really minimize the amount of ionizing radiation that patients will absorb. So they're, they're pretty darn safe. So what does all this have to do with 3D printing? Well, In this case, tomography is all about creating a three-dimensional object in real space using light and special photoreactive resins. It's super fascinating stuff, which you probably can't tell just based on the words I'm using. So this resin I'm talking about is a type of photopolymer. Polymers are long-chain molecules. A typical polymer is a chain of similar building blocks linked together. And by building blocks, I mean monomers. And a monomer can either be a single atom or more frequently, it's a small group of atoms that form a molecule. So that's a monomer. A polymer is a chain of these monomers that are all chemically bound together in some way. So you can think of the chemical bindings as the link uh, holding two elements together And uh, you get long, long, long chains of these monomers to create polymers. A lot of polymers are artificial, including plastics. That's a common polymer we encounter in our day-to-day lives. But you can also find some natural polymers, uh, cotton, silk, cellulose, which is the stuff that woody plants are made out of, starches. These are all polymers. And proteins are polymers, right? Proteins are polymers that are created by chaining together amino acids. Larger polymers are naturally heavier than smaller polymers. Makes sense. You got more stuff. It's going to have more weight. They also have higher viscosity, which means they resist flow as a liquid. Uh, So think of something like ketchup, how it will resist flow. That's a high viscosity. Not that I'm saying that ketchup is a polymer, but rather that it demonstrates high viscosity. Larger polymers also tend to have higher melting points and higher boiling points than shorter polymers. They tend to. Polymers can have all sorts of different manifestations and uh, traits. So, for example, take starch and cellulose. Both of these natural polymers are made up of chains of glucose monomers. So, at their core, they're made of the same stuff. However, those chemical bonds between monomers are different between starches and cellulose. And that means that they have different... uh, traits, those differences are significant. So for example, cellulose does not dissolve in water. It's not digestible by human beings. Starch is dissolvable in water and it is digestible by human beings. So even though they're both made of the same basic building blocks, the way those building blocks connect to each other changes their, their the way they manifest, the way they behave, if you prefer. So all polymers have a chain of chemically bonded links, but some polymers have additional structures attached to the links between those chain units. If those structures are complex, they're called pendant groups, kind of like a charm bracelet. 
Those pendant groups can affect how the polymer interacts with other stuff. And one of the things some pendant groups can do is link to pendant groups and other chains. So it can connect chains to each other. This is called cross-linking, and cross-linking makes polymers harder or more solid. Longer cross-links are flexible, and shorter cross-links create a more stiff material. So there are all different types of polymers, and humans have made tons of different kinds in labs by chaining different monomers together in different ways. And photopolymers are material that, as the name implies, react with light. The light changes the polymer's properties in some way, typically by causing it to go from liquid to solid. And sometimes it requires a specific frequency of light, like ultraviolet light, in order to create this change. Sometimes it's not a frequency of light, it's a proper light intensity or absorption. But in any case, exposure to light causes the polymers to cross-link, locking them together, solidifying them. So you quickly go from a liquid material to a solid one. How quickly? Well, in the case of photopolymers, developed by researchers at the uh, École Polytechnique Fédérale de Lausanne, and I know I butchered the pronunciation, it only takes a few seconds, and that's really darn fast. And once the polymers cross-link, they're locked in. They are not going to spontaneously let loose those links, so there's no danger of a solid object suddenly going kersploosh and turning into a liquid. That's a technical term, kersploosh. Now, 3D printing with photopolymers isn't a brand new thing. Some groups have been using processes involving light and photopolymers for a while, but most of those have had limited resolution. Now, when we're talking about 3D printing, with resolution, we're talking about how fine you can get the details on a finished 3D piece. A low resolution means you're not going to have really any smooth edges or curved surfaces. It's kind of like building stuff out of standard Lego bricks. So you can't make a, a smooth curved surface with those. You get this sort of stair-step effect instead. Earlier work, such as a project from the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in collaboration with researchers from MIT, the University of Rochester, and UC Berkeley, would use multiple overlapping lasers projecting a holographic image into a vat of photopolymer resin. The three lasers would each project into the vat from different angles. Collectively, they would create a three-dimensional representation of the object, which would then take shape within the resin as it would start to harden into a solid. Now, the version I want to talk about is a little more advanced than that. I'll explain more in just a moment, but first let's take another quick break. So, with a new approach out of Switzerland, the team wanted to create a virtual 3D model of a small object and then turn that into a physical one. Uh, the system they built is capable of printing objects that are just a couple of centimeters in size. So they project an image of this object using a laser projector. The container that's holding the resin rotates at a pretty fast rate. Synchronized with that rotation is the perspective of the three-dimensional projection. So, in other words, imagine a rotating virtual representation of an object, like a chess piece. So imagine like a, a knight on a chessboard, and the knight is rotating. It's, it's a laser projection of it. That laser projection is rotating pretty quickly. It's rotating at the same rotational speed as a vat of liquid photopolymers, so that they're synchronized up with each other. 
Now, all of this is supremely cool and awesome on its own, but here's the part that I think is truly astounding. The team has designed this process so that the resin doesn't receive enough light to solidify until the entire sequence of images and rotations is complete. So you can think of it as kind of like a slideshow. Each slide represents a slightly different angle of this three-dimensional object, and the resin only solidifies after the slideshow has gone all the way through because the resin requires a certain accumulation of light before those polymers cross-link. The system actually is parceling out light. It's only giving enough light to start the process but not complete it until every angle has been covered. At that point, there has been enough light intensity to cause the resin to solidify, which is genius. In addition, this approach allows for much higher resolution print jobs. The process I described earlier with the multiple lasers, the one that was done by researchers from MIT and UC Berkeley and such, that could print objects with a resolution of around 300 microns. In articles I read about this new process, researchers were able to print a tiny replica, a two-centimeter replica of Notre Dame Cathedral with a resolution of 80 microns. And just a reminder, you want a lower number here as it describes how small the edges are in curved surfaces. Technically, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but that's the easiest way to understand it. The team has created systems that allow printing in either hard or soft plastics. And they envision the process being used to print stuff for medical applications, like 3D printing artificial arteries, which is super cool. The resin can be sealed in a sterilized container, so the finished printed product is safe to use for medical applications because it hasn't been contaminated at all. It was created in a sterile environment. It was actually built that way. One drawback of this approach, at least for the near future, is the scale, because at the moment, they're really limited to printing these objects that are just a couple of centimeters in size. The team feels confident they can create a larger version of the system capable of printing stuff closer to 15 centimeters in scale, but that's still fairly small, so you wouldn't be printing any fully formed furniture with this stuff. Unless, of course, it's for a really tiny playhouse or something. But it's still a really awesome invention. And while it may not be possible to build something capable of constructing larger three-dimensional objects right now, maybe that'll change down the line. If so, it would be an incredible advance in additive manufacturing. It would be cutting way back on the amount of time needed to produce an object. Uh, And the resin that isn't solidified can totally be used in future print jobs. So you don't have it go to waste. Like if you are making a small object and there's a lot of resin left over, no worries. You can still use that in future jobs. That's pretty powerful. Now, as I said, this methodology owes a lot to tomography. It's essentially the reverse process in some ways. So rather than using these moving elements to image a physical object, It's using a reverse process to project a virtual image into a three-dimensional volumetric space to create a physical object. Another area of research that relates to this, in that it's an alternate take on 3D printing, is spearheaded by a guy named Adrian Bowyer, who is the founder of a company called RepRap. RepRap refers to Bowyer's work in creating what he calls a replicating rapid prototyper, which is, in other words, a 3D printer. He's now working on a really interesting application of science to create a new type of 3D printer, one different from the tomographic approach I just described. So, 
Tomography is one way to scan a three-dimensional object. But Bowyer's research is looking into a different approach. He describes a scanning technology called spectra, which already exists, and it relies not on light or x-rays as the scanning mechanism, but electric current. And here's how it works. Okay, you've got a three-dimensional object you want to scan. So let's say it's a little clay garden gnome. And you put that inside a container that's already filled with an electrically conductive fluid. So current can flow through this liquid. The gnome is now submerged in that liquid. The container also has little uh, spot electrodes mounted on opposite sides of one another on the inside of the container. So they're pointed at each other. Uh, The gnome is smack dab in between those two electrodes. These two electrodes can apply a difference of voltage, causing current to flow through the fluid. The solid object inside the fluid causes the current to move in different ways, and those fluctuations in current can be monitored. Then you can rotate the electrodes slightly and repeat the process again. And then you rotate it and repeat it again. You do this many, many, many times. And the difference in how the electric current moves through the fluid can then be calculated and add it up in an integral function that gives you a cross-section of whatever it is you're scanning. So in our case, the little clay garden gnome. And it's right along the plane of those electrodes. So however high those electrodes are within the container. Then you can move the electrodes up slightly. Let's say that you started at the very bottom of the container. You can move them up a smidge, repeat this process, and you build the next cross-section layer of this little gnome. This, now you've got a virtual representation. And you do it again and again and again until you had scanned the entire thing. Now, in practice, you would likely use a container that has lots of electrodes. You wouldn't just have two. The whole thing would be have an inside coated with a grid of fine electrodes. You would only activate pairs of these at a time in order to get the scan. But uh, by having them located around the inside of the container, you wouldn't have to rotate anything. You wouldn't have to have any moving parts. You would just activate pairs of electrodes to get those measurements until you got a full three-dimensional scan. As I said, this technology already exists. That's a scanning technology. What Bowyer wants to do is to take that model and reverse it, much in the same way that the photopolymer resin approach I described earlier is like a reverse tomographic scan. So Bayer's method would use a monomer solution that polymerizes upon exposure to electric current. This is a process called electropolymerization. It happens. Like, there's some monomers that if you subject them to an electric current, they will form uh, polymers and they'll solidify. So his idea is you take a virtual object... You've got a model, let's say it's a model of our little garden gnome, and you would apply current to a container holding monomer solution, and you would control the current in such a way so that it would activate only the bits of resin that would represent that garden gnome in that volumetric space. So it's taking that scanning process completely in reverse. Now, he hasn't managed to do it yet, but he's working on the problem. And Bowyer's hope is to create a printer based on this methodology. And not only that, he's doing it in an open source approach. He's published all of his work on on his research in this method, and anyone interested in contributing can do so. And moreover, he has a goal to make sure that this process cannot be patented. So no person, no company, no other entity would be able to take this process and lock it away under intellectual property rights. So in other words, if it works, 
it'll work for everybody. And I think that's pretty darn cool. Now, it may turn out that volumetric printing has inherent limitations that we cannot overcome. And in case that happens, it's still not a total loss because it's going to be incredibly useful for at least a certain number of applications. And we can still rely on other methods to produce things that are outside of that spectrum. That's pretty much the case with every single process we can think of. Even with traditional 3D printing, you're limited in the size of the thing you can print, at least in a, a single printing session, because you have to keep stuff at the right temperature. Uh, if it gets too heavy, then it can collapse in on itself. So if you want to print a really big print job, you typically have to do it in sections and then glue the pieces together at the end or otherwise have them adhere to each other at the end because uh, you, you just can't keep it structurally sound through the whole printing process if it's a really big print job. In the future, we could see 3D volumetric printers making all sorts of stuff, including the basic scaffolding for things like artificial and 3D printed organs. In the meantime, I just think it's a super nifty technology to learn more about. As for other types of 3D printing, they are still really awesome. Uh, it has not proliferated quite to the level that people were predicting about five years ago, but the work continues. And we've seen some really cool uses of the tech so far, including enormous 3D printers that can use stuff like a, a concrete-based resin to build entire houses out of, layer by layer, all the way down to students using commercial 3D printers or even consumer 3D printers to build stuff like artificial limbs for people who otherwise would never be able to afford one. So it's truly a revolutionary technology. I can't wait to see where it goes next. And that wraps up this episode about 3D printers and tomography. If you guys have suggestions for future topics of tech stuff, reach out to me. You can get in touch with me on social media, on Facebook or Twitter. We use the handle techstuffhsw at both. We'll look forward to hearing from you and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.